Okay, hi, this is Jess, and I am here today to talk about one of the more significant stories in Halifax's history that seems to crop up every April. And I am here with a very special guest. And why don't you, uh, why don't you introduce yourself here to everyone? Okay, thank you, Jess. My name is Pat Teasdale. I'm a long life resident of Dartmouth, and I'm a member of the Dartmouth uh, Heritage Museum Society. And I guess we're here today to talk about some Dartmouth connections with one of the major historic events of the early 20th century, the sinking of Titanic. That certainly did shape a whole lot of not only the nautical world and Halifax and Dartmouth, but even in modern days, pop culture and so on. What have you been learning over the years about uh, Halifax's connection? Because I know that many people may know that People that have died, that died in the Titanic and perished, are buried in Halifax and Dartmouth. Um, But there's so much more than that, isn't there? Yes, there certainly is. I personally feel that in the Titanic literature, the role of, of Halifax is not really given the importance that that it has. After Titanic sank and the White Star Line realized there would be no more survivors than the ones who were rescued by the ship Carpathia, they hired cable ships from Halifax to um, go out and recover bodies from the sinking. Now Halifax was sort of pivotally situated in a good position here. Um, it was a port close to the North Atlantic where a lot of the cable ships worked. There were many cable ships based here and there were railway lines from Halifax that could take the recovered bodies to other parts of Canada and the United States for the families. And those cable car, like they i i've heard that they they there are connections not only to halifax and dartmouth and the titanic but to there there are there are even closer connections here that may not be realized like is there anything more you can tell me about that related to the cable ships themselves yeah. and their crews Yes, a lot of the crews on those cable ships, the first of which were the Mackie Bennett and the CS Minia, lived in Halifax and Dartmouth. Although in the case of my grandfather, who we'll talk about later, he had been born in England and he came from England on the Minia to Halifax on his first working on his first cable ship in 1911, just before the sinking of Titanic. 
shortly before, and he would have been like, what, 19 he at that point? He was 19 in 19. 1911 when he yeah. signed on in Southampton. And then he turned 20 in January of 1912. And when he turned 20, so it's he's 20 in 1912, and the Titanic, that call went out. I wonder what that must have been like. It's something very difficult for me to imagine because, of course, as a child, as one of his grandchildren, you look at your grandfather as an old man and you don't think that, well, you know he was young once, but you don't think, well, he was adventurous and he had a brief brush with history. So that part is quite astonishing for me okay your grandfather uh, so Francis Dyke was on <clears throat> the mini- cable ship Minia yes Minia. yeah and I I can relate to uh, we, we were talking about this before uh, and something that I I know I personally grew up was my grandfather when he after he participated in the second world war he never spoke about it afterwards and growing up in i was in a military town at the time and one of the things that you do as a child as a youth in a military town is you join the cadets but he actively never went to any of the events with me and I remember years later uh asking a relative why he would never participate in remembrance day ceremonies and ve day ceremonies because I'd realized after he had passed how many things had he had actually been a part of and what I was told is when you walked in the front door of his home there was a picture that was taken the day his entire regiment left. And he left that at his front door so that every day it would be his reminder of what happened and he never wanted to speak of it. So in hearing that, I can only think like it that must have been just the most standard generational traumatic to see such tragedy and have to contain that and still live as positive a life as you can live because I'm sure after the fact he I'm sure after the fact he he must have had a terribly shelled up life that was very introverted and he didn't interact with many people or he would have been like the kindest gentlest most caring person out there right yeah the latter would be the latter would be true of him he actually was um as i said he was born in england came here when he was 19 to Halifax, working on the cable ship. And of course, when you're young like that, um, 
the, the crew would go out in the community and meet some of the other young people from Dartmouth. There were dances, there was Banook Canoe Club, places like this, the St. George's Tennis Club. And he, he met and married my grandmother, spent the rest of his life living here, although he visited England many times. But he was actually a very involved citizen of Dartmouth, very active in a lot of um, organizations like Christ Church. Um, the Sunday school, he was a superintendent for many years. He was on the vestry. He was also one of the um, very early organizers of um, trying to establish the first Dartmouth Regional Library. Interesting. And so okay. I would say he was, he was an outgoing man. He was sort of a people person in his life. Um, and he, he was kind and generous with his time to everyone, to us grandchildren and other people in the community. Um, but as you say, I think within him, he had this memory of this traumatic event of being on Minia during the body recovery mission from Titanic and seeing, seeing bodies floating in the ocean, seeing debris floating in the ocean, the bodies being bought, brought on the ship and different things like that. So those are things he never really talked about with our family, although we did know he had served on Minia at that time and he was part of that mission. Um, so there were a lot of men in Dartmouth who crewed on Mackie Bennett and Minia. Maybe this is a little diversion, but one of them was a man named William Parker. He was the ship's carpenter, actually. Every cable ship had a carpenter as part of the crew because things needed to be repaired or built or just on a whim. You know, you were out on the North Atlantic for months at a time, depending on the time it took for the cable repair. You couldn't just go to shore and get something you yeah. needed or get it fixed somewhere. So um, William Parker is actually the one who's credited with making a lot of the mementos that the crew had uh, that were made of wreckwood from Titanic, pieces of wood that were picked up from the ocean as they were picking up bodies. There were pieces of the grand mm. staircase, other planking, stuff like that. And uh, William Parker's work and his tools are actually on display in the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic in Halifax. But he lived in Dartmouth. So I find that That's, another interesting <laughs> Dartmouth-Titanic connection. That is very interesting. <laughs> yeah, because I... It's... And it's something that's come up a lot, too, how there's so much rich history in Dartmouth. Mm -hmm. And it's just that interconnectedness. Halifax is not Dartmouth. Dartmouth is not Halifax. But there's this strange symbiotic, you can't have one without the other. <laughs> and both of them are just so intertwined. I just, I find that really cool how those little things just exist in those spaces. Mm -hmm. And and I'm just like thinking back to like when you're saying like for for your grandfather to be 20 and seeing what he saw. I know for many people like that would have been like we we think now in like 2022 when this is being recorded you know 
we have so much access to media. We have so much access to news, photography, videos. If we want, we've seen it all at this point and are so completely desensitized. But for many of those people, that would have been the very first time that they would have interacted with anything even remotely close to that. So I can I can definitely see how that would how that would affect a person very internally. Yeah. Whether or not they spoke about it. Um what what was his uh what when when you do you know much about his upbringing when he was younger in England? Yes, yes, we do, very fortunately, because he often talked about England, his life there. We have some beautiful old photographs, and he visited England a number of times later in his adult life, during the 60s and the early 70s, and um, two of our great uncles, who were his brothers, visited here, so we knew a lot about it. So. There were three boys. Francis was the youngest. Their father was a successful auctioneer in Farringdon in Berkshire, England. And they had a very large home on an estate called Coxwell Estate. And this was also part of the contrast for me from what he experienced later in this body recovery mission is he had a very sheltered life. He and his two brothers were taught at home by a private tutor. And when Francis was 16, he went to a private boarding school for two years to finish off his education. Uh, his two brothers were older, and they went into the military, and they were involved in the First World War. So that was their education and training. Later they went into agriculture, which their father had also gone into later in his life after the auctioneering. Um, so Francis's life was very sheltered, but it, I know it was very cultured, very academic, because he was that type of person. He was very smart, a voracious reader. He, he talked about politics and inventions and technology and all kinds of things. He was quite a fascinating man. But to have that sheltered upbringing, and then at the age of 19, after he had studied wireless in England, we believe he studied um, near London. Um, I have not been able to get proof of this, but there was an, a Marconi school at a place called Chelmsford, near London. And we know that it was told that he went to London to study wireless, so that's probably where it was. And then, boom, in 1911, he's 19, and he goes to Southampton, he signs on the Minia, comes all the way across the Atlantic Ocean to Halifax. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he remained here the rest of his life. I mean, his, his, his father actually died, um, I think, in the 1920s. He died fairly young, but his mother was actually able to come to Dartmouth twice to visit him and his family, his growing family, because he, um, after he was married, he and his wife had three daughters, one of whom was my mother, the, the middle daughter. Okay. Yeah. And that's really cool. And actually, 
leads me to this next part. Um, well-educated, very academic, lover of literature, and while I noticed that you spoke a lot of his father, mm-hmm. I know that there is at least one other connection to his mother that we could speak of right now. And that happens to be a lovely little letter that has been donated to the Dartmouth Heritage Museum collections. Yes. Can you uh, tell me more about what this letter is? Oh my gosh, because the letter was a huge revelation to our family. Um, You see, my grandfather actually died in 1972 at the age of 80 when he was in England visiting his last surviving brother. And he, he's buried in England. And he's buried there now with his, with his brothers and his parents. So it was very fitting because that was his homeland. But, so that was 1972. If you fast forward to 1992, 20 years later, my mother and some family members are at the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic and they knew about his, um, that he was on Minia. They were looking for some more information about um, maybe the role of the Minia in the aftermath because he'd never talked about it but they knew that he was on Minia. They're walking through the Titanic exhibit and they look up on the display board and they see this quote, I honestly hope I shall never have to come on a mission like this. The doctor wow. and I are sleeping in the middle of 14 coffins. Quotations, all in quotations. Francis R. Dyke, May 3rd, 1912. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so my mother stopped in her tracks. <laughs> They were able to um, meet with the curator of Maritime Museum of the Atlantic and said, where did that quote from come from? That's my father, Francis Dyke. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly how we discovered the letter. And to our astonishment, they were told that the letter was owned by the Dartmouth Heritage Museum, which is very ironic because... <laughs> When the museum and the regional library opened in 1967, I was one of the first student guides here for those two summers while I was at university. And that letter never surfaced or was brought to my attention or I discovered that it was in the collection or anything like that. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So as a family, we actually were able to go to the original Dartmouth Heritage Museum on Wise Road, view the letter... Uh, read the whole thing, and at that time we got photocopies of of it for the family, and that sort of sparked my interest more, and I said to myself, why didn't I ask Granddad more about that when I was growing up? Um, But it never came up. It's interesting, like you talked about pop culture a little bit earlier. I think in, in the... 60s, 70s, even the, well, early 80s, Titanic was there, people were interested in it, but it didn't have the big hype that it had until two things happened. 
1985, when Robert Ballard discovered where the wreck was, and they dove down to it and took pictures. And whichever year it was around the 1990s that the big blockbuster Six, movie... 1996. Give or take. Yeah, James Cameron's movie Titanic came out. Don't quote me on that. Somewhere around there. <laughs> around there, in between there. That, that hype of those two things, I think, made everybody suddenly interested in Titanic. And there were all these little stories, and people said, well, you know, I, I know about this and I know about that, but I don't know anything more about it, you know? Yeah. So when we found the letter, we just had so much information. He was actually on Minia. He started the letter on April 27th, and he wrote to his mother, Cordelia, in England. And she kept the letter, obviously, and it somehow came back to Dartmouth to him. It could have been sent after her death. She could have brought it when she came over to visit in the 1930s. We're not sure. But then, because he was involved in helping to establish the Dartmouth Regional Library and Museum on Wise Road, which was a centennial project for 1967, we're quite sure that is how it got donated to the museum because there are these stories of Dartmouth residents keeping all their memorabilia for years in the hopes that there would be a Dartmouth museum. And when the museum uh, was established, a lot of those things were donated. The early records, a lot of them were done by hand. So I haven't actually been able to find his name as the donator, but he had to be. Who else? Who else would it be? Or, or maybe his mother directly. Because uh, well, as somebody as somebody with a mother, I yes. can confirm when you become an adult, yes. that random box of things that you yeah. thought you lost as a child suddenly reappears in your living room. That's right. That's, so, that's... I can definitely see that as a plausible scenario where he came to visit. Maybe she was downsizing. Here, mm. this is a letter you sent me. I'd yes. love you to have that kind yes. of... And, yeah, it those that's really interesting. Like I wonder how he did get it, but we can we can almost we can almost guarantee it's just a mom cleaning up the box in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> I kept this for you all these years. It could be. Yeah. yeah. I think she realized the significance of it into into the future, you know, and but he obviously just tucked it away somewhere because that was when he died in 1972. That was not part of his effects or anything. It had by that time been donated here to the Dartmouth Heritage Museum. And we're very glad because it's been preserved here. And a lot of people have come to do research about it over the years. It's been on display several times in April uh, on the special anniversaries of Titanic. So, And it has a lot of information in it about what happened, what was actually happening in front of him, but I think a little bit about how he, he felt about it and his philosophy of life yeah. <laughs> at the age of 20. Yeah, and I I can't remember if it was... I think I was reading about one of the... Uh, one of the operators on the Titanic, and there was very little information in this file but there was like two sentences and somehow in these two very short sentences it opened up this whole world of context 
So to have a full letter, yeah, it it's just you're right. Like you can have just just a couple lines of text, mm-hmm. and it says so much. And as an aside, like it is unfortunate, like that just the art of that is getting lost over time. To just how can you say something profound and eloquent, but in such a few amount, such a small amount of words, yeah. So it's it is really really great that that letter has made it this this long for people to have access to. Exactly, 110 years later this year, this is the 110th commemoration of sinking of Titanic. And I do have a digital copy of the letter with me. I can read a few parts of it if you like, or you can ask Absolutely. me about parts of it or something like that, whatever you... you... It, what, what, what are the parts that stick out for you? Mm. So I've marked a few parts to sort of talk about. And, yeah, it's really cool. Like, he started it on April 27th, 1912, at 2.20 a.m. in the morning. And Minia was a cable ship that was owned by the Anglo-American Telegraph Company. So that's at the top of the letter. And then it says cable ship Minia. But it begins this way. It begins, My darling mother, I expect you will be surprised to receive this written on this paper. But I am on watch now in the wireless room, so thought it a good opportunity to write you. This is the most remarkable trip the old Minia has ever been on, as we are looking for bodies from the Titanic wreck. You know I wrote that we were up north on a cable repair when we heard she had sunk. We arrived in Halifax about three days after, and it was reported that we had some of the rescued on board. But we had not, and the reporters that came to meet us were disappointed. So it's, um, it's, it's just so personal here, too. That's the other thing that strikes me about the letter, is this was a personal letter he was writing to his mother. I think he would be totally amazed that this letter still exists after 110 years, and right. that, <laughs> that historians, and Titanic historians in particular, are interested in it. You know, because I think it was meant to be a very private communication probably to to let her know what he was doing um, that he was doing this important work but also probably to let her know that he was okay this big ship that everybody toted in the world was was unsinkable had gone to the bottom of the ocean and here he was on a smaller cable ship in the North Atlantic about to assist with recovering bodies from the ocean you know, I think he wanted to let her know he was okay and what he was doing. I mean, as a mother, I think if I'd gotten that letter... That would be terrifying. It would be terrifying and a huge shock to me. And as we were talking about letter writing and communication and so on, I mean, these letters took forever to go back and forth across the ocean. Well, of course, Titanic and other ships were mail steamers also. But still... It wasn't like a text or a phone call or anything like immediate. You get this letter. Well, of course, it would be received well after the event. 
but then you don't hear anything for a while after that and you're wondering you know is he still okay what's going on <laughs> so that's the beginning of the letter so that's the beginning of the letter yeah. and that yeah is there anything else in the letter that stands out to you Yes, there, there. Because are I know it's a yeah. fairly lengthy letter for yeah, what it is. It's interesting. It is, it is six pages, but when you see it in the collection, it's tiny little pieces of paper. It looks almost like if you can remember when we were in school. Well, maybe you can't because you're a lot younger than I am. I don't think you realize how <laughs> young I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well. If you remember at one time when you when you might write compositions or things like that, you would first kind of write it on manila paper that was kind of just rough scrap paper. And then when it was all edited or proofread, you, you could write it on fool's cap or nice paper. This paper, to me, it's, it's all very yellowed, just tiny little pieces, probably about five by five by seven or eight not very big i thought it would be bigger because of course the digital copies are a bit bigger to be right. clear um it looks like paper he grabbed when in the wireless room and that's why he said you'd be surprised seeing it on this paper so um there's lots of information here about the two cable ships being um hired mackie bennett first and going out and then they were so overwhelmed by the number of bodies that White Star Line had to hire Minia to go out. So Minia actually didn't arrive at the site until the 27th of April. And if you think of the fact that Titanic sank on the 15th. In That's going to be a smell all of its own. <laughs> it's a long period of time. Yeah. Although at that point, the bodies were still in the cold part of the North Atlantic. Um, they would, after that, drift further into the Gulf Stream where it would get warmer. But there are a few places where he writes things like, I can tell, I can tell you none of this like this job at all, but it is better to recover them and bury them properly than to let them float about for weeks. The Reverend Cunningham came out with us to bury those not identified when we passed over the spot where the Titanic sank, he held a short service in the saloon, which I thought very nice of him. I expected to see the poor creatures very disfigured, but they all look as calm as if they were asleep. So the bodies he was seeing were still had been in the cold water. They looked quite peaceful. That part gives me some, some hope that at least, although it was traumatic, he believed they were at peace now that's a, and that's something that i have heard from uh from other people who have worked in like the funeral uh uh funeral like the funeral homes and such and something i have heard regularly is uh when how often when you're dealing with people who have passed it re the, the and oftentimes it really does like there is a sense of peace and you are there to 
you're there to serve them and honor them as best you can. And I think it really speaks a lot to his character and his mentality as as an individual and the way he was brought up to be in that moment and just be like, this is a terrible thing. I need to make sure that these people are shown the respect and love and care that they deserve in this. And like that just, it says a lot about him just in that one little bit. Yes, I, I agree it does. And of course, I knew him all my life. So when I read the letter, I, I, can, I can see he was like that, probably from a young age. He had a strong faith in God all his life, and I feel that was his upbringing in the beginning, but then it was probably something like this that strengthened his faith in God, that he and other crew members were there at the right time to recover the bodies that they could, get them embalmed and bring them back to Halifax so that they could either be picked up by their family or they could be buried as you said earlier in three grave sites in Halifax um, that's those are the largest number of Titanic bodies in the world that are buried here in Halifax and again it's it's the fact that I don't think the importance of that is is stressed enough or known enough in the world I mean if that was anywhere else if that was New York yeah, it it, it it would be a tourist attraction. It would. <laughs> it would. In a sense, it, it they um, tour companies do take um, visitors out there, and I think those of us who are Titanic enthusiasts are almost happy to have it be more a place of respect yeah. than a carnival yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. And it, like even when thinking about the Titanic and how. Not and not just like how how important Halifax and how important Dartmouth are to the story as a whole. Like when it happened, even when you think in modern times, like part part of that giant blockbuster film that so many people grew up seeing or saw as adults was filmed here. <laughs> Exactly. Like we 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 filmed it here, and and even because we're we're doing like Halifax and Dartmouth are are part of the to jump aside here. Like we're we're also part of the the large group of people that are still actively doing Titanic research, aren't we? I think the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic does ongoing research into Titanic and particularly the connection with the cable ships. They do have a wealth of information there on the cable ships. Um, and there's, there has been a brand new installation on the waterfront there by the Queen's Mark and by um, 
Murphy's on the Water, which actually there are um, brass drums that are meant to look like the the plate the storage drums where the cable was stored in the cable ships and there's information on them about the role of the cable ships in wireless communication and how it opened up communication around the world and also contributed to safety at sea because of all the regulations that came in once there were wireless machines on ships and once the Titanic sank there were a lot of um, new regulations for safety at sea that would never happen again unless you know the number of lifeboats had to be increased and all those things and actually that Murphy's on the water used to be the cable building for Western Union so it's very cyclical what's going it's, on it's, yeah it's history it's a historic building I mean now it's a store and a restaurant but in that building you could walk and there were the great sort of wells in the floor of the cable which was stored before it was transferred onto the ships and that was the um, cable wharf and building where my grandfather later served on the Lord Kelvin and the Cyrus Field and my mother remembers going into that cable shed so I love too how many cities Halifax and Dartmouth included repurpose some of these historic buildings too but again do people know that that's what that was yeah because you <laughs> you 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 see the names on the side the on the sidewalks you see yes. the names on the buildings yes. but you might not realize what's actually going on yeah um one of my favorite things and this isn't related to halifax or dartmouth or any of this at all but one of my favorite things that i've ever found while traveling was walking down the street in old Montreal and seeing this ornate building and all it said on it was fairyland <laughs> and for I just stopped because yeah. what an absurd name for a building fairyland and you know I later on I did research I'm like that's just the most ridiculous thing to have on a building for like 150 and it turns out there's a whole history but you're right when you're walking downtown you might see the Queen's Mark Purdy's Wharf all these things Obviously. You you names cable you, all wharf. these n- cable yeah cable wharf. wharf and things like that. But you th- that's 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 all you hear. It's like okay, so this must just be because it's next to the water. So they thought of some clever name without realizing the significance behind it. Yeah. Yeah. It. Um, yeah. Um, just before we go ahead as well. Yes. Let me just read a little more from the letter because um, yeah it's interesting I, I'm i proud being a Dartmouthian that this letter is here at the Dartmouth Heritage Museum um, the Maritime Museum of course has a very much larger collection of Titanic memorabilia they have one of the only deck chairs in existence in the world um, behind glass they have the replica that you can sit in but the real one is behind the glass but I'm glad it's here, and I'm glad it helps to promote research and interest in the Dartmouth Heritage Museum. Another part of the letter that sort of gets me is connected to the quote that the Maritime Museum chose to put in the Titanic display. So Francis, my grandfather, is writing this in little snippets over the course of a couple of days while they are still at sea recovering the bodies. So 
this little excerpt at May the 3rd, just a few lines to let you know how things are going. I honestly hope I shall never have to come on another expedition like this, as it is far from pleasant. The doctor and I are sleeping in the middle of 14 coffins. For the time being, they are all stacked round our quarters aft. So that's the quote that's at the Maritime Museum, the one that led my mother and our family to this letter. And it, it just kind of gets you right in the heart. Yeah. You know, he's, he's 20, and he, when he goes to bed, he has to weave his way through these coffins where there are bodies of people who were just as alive as he was a week or so earlier, you know, a couple of weeks yeah. earlier. It's incredible to me. I, it is a, and without experiencing it, like that, that really is like, you, as much as you want to like, try to, like, there's no way you can ever imagine what that would be like for some, like, without actually experiencing it. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, yes. And he talks there a little bit next about the fact that they're picking up all this debris and part of it are pieces from the grand staircase, which were from below decks. So he has a theory in here that he thinks that the Titanic must have blown up when it struck the iceberg. But we, we know it kind of split in two and all this beautiful wood came up. And a lot of that wood was picked up when the crews were out in the small boats picking up the bodies. They would pick that up as well, bring it onto the ship. So William Parker, the ship's carpenter, carved many things for the crew members. They either asked him to make something or he made something for them. Um, There were cribbage boards made, cutting boards, little picture frames, and we're very privileged in our family to have a very small round picture frame. It's only about five inches in diameter, but you can tell the wood is very old and that it it is hand-carved with tools. It's quite delicate and lightweight wood. Um, We do know we had seen that as children on his bedroom wall when he moved in with our family. This was in the 1960s. And the only person that ever asked him was my mother. Where did that come from? I've never seen it before. He said, oh, I got that when I was on the old Minia. The ship's carpenter made it for me. And that was it. So since then, our family have had it authenticated. It's definitely wood from Titanic, and it's definitely the work of William Parker. So that little artifact exists as a treasure for our family as well. And here he's talking about the wood that's picked up. And it's just making me think, and and now, after all these years, when there's no photos of the Grand Staircase or whatever, and and, and now the world knows that the Grand Staircase is partially at your house <laughs> that's quite possible that's and in possibly a few other homes in halifax and dartmouth people are you know saying there still could be little artifacts tucked away because yeah. sometimes these things are forgotten or if nothing is written on them or on the back of the cardboard or something like that people who find them later don't really realize the significance of them yeah because unless yeah. Because I, I can see that, like, unless you, 
were you're unless you were actively told unless you were unless you went out and like explicitly said like to most people they would just see a picture frame on a wall and go that's a picture frame and that's as far as the converse that that's as far as the thought would go yes even if it was an ornate one it's like oh look a picture frame that cost a few extra dollars to go per- like not thinking oh this is a picture frame from one of the biggest historical events of like this person's life yes, exactly exactly <laughs> yeah so, you know someday that will be in a museum but for now it's it's just a treasure of our our family and when i do talk to people about titanic i i like to safely show it to them you know so they can sort of see it's like you say it's a real piece of history and it has yeah. a little story behind it quite yeah. an incredible story really it's it's and going back even like to what we were saying just earlier about just a few sentences it's incredible how things that are so small can tell so much just just one like just one little picture frame and you're weaving stories together about your family about the city of Halifax about cablemen trips on the ocean world events and it's all in a little piece of wood that's right yeah that's right yeah or in a few lines in a letter as well and it it just it's also they went out and they did this this humanitarian effort because when they signed on cable ships they agreed to do the duties that were assigned but any additional duties that were assigned yeah so they they really didn't have a choice but they believed as it said it was their duty to respect these bodies and treat them with dignity and try to bring them to resting places and it it just um yeah that and then when the letter ends they're coming back into Halifax on May the 6th and he says that I'm sorry to say that we have to go out again in about two days up north the same place where we were again when we heard about the Titanic your loving son Francis Dyke they had no time as we talked about it before to process what had happened uh, they came into shore they had to do a turnaround with resupplying and just go out again and repair cable you know just just all right you're back you've dealt with this yeah. now that was in the past move on go forward and- yes yeah yeah that's hard i think for us to process because we know how important it has been for people to have time you know to deal with these things some people years and years and years you know i i'm i'm very grateful that we now live in a period of time where at least acknowledging trauma and mental health issues and coping with things like this is part of dialogue that is had it's that it is part of that um because it really makes you wonder like for the for the amount of amazing wonderful things that your grandfather had done 
what would he have been like without experiencing that or with a therapist <laughs> exactly yeah, like- exactly it's it's very hard to imagine it 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 really is um and it's interesting a couple of times you've you've kind of talked about like being in the moment or being present and <clears throat> that's how i think of him i think it's part of the reason why he didn't talk about it because shortly after 1912 well by 1915 that's when he married my grandmother they were just a young couple she was a very sheltered young girl from dartmouth you know i i think he didn't want to traumatize her also by talking about it but as we were growing up he, he spent a lot of time with each of us grandchildren and i know he he spent the time that he could with his three daughters although they missed him terribly when he was on the cable ship when he was out at sea he was sometimes gone for a couple of months and they really missed him. But they each had a close bond with him. He was a man who lived in the moment. So I think he had a way of putting it somewhere, I guess, yeah. you know, to say, okay, that was that, but this is this. And this is my life. I have joy and happiness in it. And he went from there. Yeah. That's what he taught, taught each of us, I think. One of the things. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of lessons there. What that is there are there any other stories that you can think of when you think of the Titanic or that come to mind for you or of your grandfather? Um Well just one quick one related related to his letter is that recently when I've been doing some further research I'm always trying to find things online or talk to people or do things um, to get more information I have found out that this is actually one of only two known letters that were written on Minia during the body recovery mission there were there were others that were written afterwards where people said oh this is what i've just been doing and where i was but this is one of it's known this is one of only two known letters in the world that were written on minia during the recovery mission so for me i see this as a very rare primary historical source yeah and (laughs) it's it's again i'm grateful that it's here in the dartmouth heritage museum um and that it's it's just it's just rare you know i mean when i was a child and i knew about the frame i would sometimes tell people my grandfather was on this cable ship and he went out and brought bodies back from the titanic and people would say oh oh that's nice and then just you go on and play you know but this this is it's it's very important to remember this story and the story of others um there was one other dartmouth connection and that's to the man named george wright i'll just kind of finish with this i know it's not about my grandfather but but who is george wright because yeah george george wright was actually a very well-known businessman and a philanthropist 
who lived in Halifax on Young Avenue. He, um, he also was instrumental in having sort of designing with architects um, different types of housing in that south end area of Halifax where you would have mixed use dwellings. There would be kind of um, some larger homes for the very wealthy and there would be some other homes for like the middle class all kind of mixed together and he was very much into having community where people could walk and talk with one another. But he also, as a businessman, he traveled the world and he uh, compiled these business directories and one of them is actually owned by the Dartmouth Heritage Museum. It's called Wright's World Business Directory. It's the 1899 to 1900 edition and it's part of the collection here at Dartmouth Heritage Museum. George Wright was actually traveling on Titanic from Europe to New York in April of 1912 and did not survive the sinking. It's said actually that that he didn't appear on, nobody remembered seeing him on deck anywhere and he was known to be a sound sleeper so whether that was that's just a story or a myth or whatever we won't know for sure <laughs> but also sadly his body was never recovered by any of these cable ships or a couple of ships that went out after that so some of his family members actually lived in Dartmouth in the north end of Dartmouth and they've erected a stone in his memory in Christchurch Cemetery here in Dartmouth. So there's sort of a well-known businessman who had had a life, made contributions to society, and um, now there's, there's a little stone in his memory in Christchurch. People probably walk by it, but it is interesting if you go there with somebody that knows a little about it and can talk to you, tell you that detail. That's cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, thank you, Pat, for uh, coming by. And yeah, it's it's always nice to find stories like this in the museum, and just even in everyone's homes, because there there really is. There's so much history, just everywhere. We just sometimes don't even realize just how much or how significant. So really appreciate you sharing this with me thank you it's it's really been a treat to tell my grandfather's story